two, one, go. Hello and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. My name is Tom Rivet Karnak. Tom, when did you change from Tom Karnak to Tom Rivet Karnak? And why I, did you I, change? I will explain, but let's get on with the podcast. Okay. My name is Cristiana Figueres. And my name is Paul Dickinson. This week, we talk about the end of oil demand and we speak to Vice President of Spain, Teresa Ribera, and to Thomas Toon Anderson, the chair of Orsted. Thanks for being here. <laughs> All right. Okay. It seems we have important issues to discuss. I think we have to leave. Yeah, we have to leave that in there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Now, okay. So, so, uh, Christiana, would you like to re-ask your question of Tom? Yeah. Well, Tom, is this the politically correct moment to ask you why did you go from Tom Karnak, which is the way you introduced yourself to me? Originally, and now you're like Tom Rivet Carnet. Is this because you're now famous or what? Have, have you ever seen these forms? You know, where like the, I mean, not that I have, but I've heard about them where the police say things like, "Have you ever been under another name?" I mean, you have, Tom. You've, you know, you're it's very using gratifying this- to hear that I'm famous from Christiana Figueres. I don't feel very famous. Well, uh, it takes up more space on the cover of a book. <laughs> oh. So here's That's the what- truth. Do you want to hear the truth? It's not yeah. very exciting, but I can share the truth with you. I have a double-barreled name. I've been keeping it secret from the world for years. And in fact, when I joined CDP, which was my first real job in my late 20s, having sort of messed around for many years, um, the decision point came, and I remember it, when I had to say what my email was going to be. And was I Tom Rivet Karnak or Tom Karnak? And I decided to go for the simpler email. And then as time went on, I good felt decision. good decision. I felt divorced <laughs> from my name because I, I've, I'm Tom Rivet Karnak. That's how I grew up. So then I reclaimed it in 2019, I suppose. Why did you reclaim it in 2019? Because I suppose. he's famous. I already told you, Paul. <laughs> For what? <laughs> all right. All right. I've. So it is true, it is true that when we were writing a book, I had to think about, and our agent, Doug, brilliant agent and idea architects, asked me what name we'd have on the cover of the book. And I was like, shit, am I still going to be Tom Karnak or do I now take this moment to 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 reclaim my double-barreled name? And so I decided that I would get rid of the demons of the past and just acknowledge to the world that I am indeed a Rivet Karnak. Third time, third time. Why? Why? Yes, I mean, I'm fourth time. Why? <laughs> um, because that's my name, and I'd regretted having Tom Karnak. I think there's another whole story here. I think we need to do some research. We need to find out what's really going on here. If there's some kind of sinister ancestral thing going on, which there might be, um, but we'll just leave it for now, okay? We'll just leave it. For now. Well, and Tom, by the way, you didn't send me that memo because when we were getting ready to publish the book, had you sent me that memo, I would have also gone for my whole name, which is Karen Cristiana Figueres Olsen. What do you think that is even? digestible that is true i do remember the lead into the paris agreement we did rather wish that that we could just sort of send karen olsen off to do particular things and have christiana figueres do other things as your as your doppelganger yeah, well uh, karen olsen happens to be my mother anyway oh, I see. let's move on <laughs> let's move but on but it is true let me say one more rivet carnac thing so i'm reading this amazing book at the moment um by william dalrymple um it's about the east india company and it's all about my ancestors, all about how they would like travel across India and commit these awful atrocities. So um, anyway, that's me reclaiming my sordid past. Okay. So today's a big day. It's Paul Dickinson's birthday. Happy birthday <laughs> to Hello. you. Happy birthday to me. Is this what your first podcast birthday, Paul? I suppose it is pretty much. Uh, it is, and uh, yeah, you know, I ju- I, to be honest with you, my father hated his birthday, and I, I kind of grew up in a family where we sort of didn't talk about it, we're in denial about it. I personally uh, reject the aging process as a kind of fraud, and it's not really my birthday, but you're very kind to say it is. So can I, mean, I suggest de- that many yeah. of the tens of thousands of people watching tweet Paul, his his Twitter account is Paul Outrage and, and feel free to tweet him directly saying happy birthday to help him get over his aversion to birthdays that his father has instilled in him. You're just Good trying idea. to get me, yeah. you're trying to get me to make my second tweet exactly. ever, Exactly, and then, and then if we get a cut, you know, what, 200 tweets directly at you, then you'll make your second tweet. Do you know, I was about to tweet and then I saw that Donald Trump has got these things on his tweets now that say, uh, check the facts, this may not be true, so I'm now <laughs> suspicious about whether I, probably like, you know, uh, scary to go out there now tom 
episode. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, today is a very special day for two reasons. First, because it's Paul's birthday. Secondly, Mm -hmm. because it is the first day in which all marriages are legal in Costa Rica. Oh, congratulations. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that is fantastic news. very exciting. The lodges came in yesterday. And so there are all kinds of weddings happening today of friends and people I don't know. And it's very exciting. So I know that you guys are like really bored of Costa Rica being so special. We got there before. You. Yeah. We well, you did. Before. Well, you've been around before us for a few centuries. Um, Costa Rica seems is one of the five Latin American countries to legalize same-sex unions. So there's are in in alphabetical order: Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, Costa Rica, and Ecuador. Oh. Hold on, here's Uruguay way down at the bottom. So could it be that there are now six Latin American countries? Well, that's brilliant. There's a total of 40 countries in the world. My question is, the Latin where is everybody world. else? No, mm. 40, 40 in the whole world. So the question really? is where, yeah. God, that's shocking, isn't it? That is pretty bad. Come on, everyone, where are you? Yeah, really. All right. it's uh, Human yeah. rights, human rights. This is it. All right, so shall we talk about the... Topic du jour? Yes, please. Okay. May we? <laughs> so, s'il vous plaît. Thank you, Paul. Uh, right, so today we're going to talk about the unique moment that is being experienced by the oil and gas sector, which is something we haven't talked about to this time. And unprecedented is an overused word right now, but it can't be avoided when talking about what's happened to oil prices recently. So through a combination of OPEC inability to stem supply and a massive drop in economic activity, we've seen negative oil prices recently. And while they've recovered somewhat, we're still at something like $30 a barrel for Brent crude, well below what is needed to break even for most oil producers and certainly below break-even point for fracking. Oil supermajors have responded in quite interesting ways. And a report this week pointed out that most of them are paying dividends well beyond what they can afford. 18.5 billion in dividends and share buybacks was executed this quarter when they only generated 8.6 billion in free cash flows. And as a result, they are basically paying dividends to shareholders by borrowing money. So that might be a way to keep their stock attractive, but it's no way to build a long-term business. Now, we have no great prescient insight into the future of oil prices, but what we can discuss is the feasibility of a rapid move away from oil. If we're going to see this shift accelerating, it's going to require both strong government action on the end of the internal combustion engine and changes to permitting for oil and gas, And it's also going to require leadership from companies that are going to have to do more than just reduce their climate impact. They're going to have to work out ways to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And later in the program, we'll be talking to two brilliant individuals who represent both of those views. Teresa Ribera, the vice president of Spain, who can explain regulations that are being brought in to stop oil and gas permitting from now in Spain, and Thomas Toon Anderson, the chair of Orsted, who has managed this remarkable transition in their history. But let's just start by talking about the moment we're in. What do you both take from this? Do you feel encouraged by what we're seeing in the oil and gas sector? Do you feel concerned about it? Do you think it's going to help the transition that we're all trying to facilitate and support? Christiana, where are you on this? Uh-oh. This is one of my favourite topics. Are you now giving me a soapbox? <laughs> Go for it. That that, that um, is what this podcast is. It is an an enormous soapbox. (laughs) It is the biggest soapbox in the world. Go for it. Climb on up. We'll We'll wait. That's right. The reason why it's one of my favorite topics is because I do think that the transition of the oil and gas sector is if probably the strongest, the strongest lever to success on addressing climate change. And conversely, um, if they do not uh, transition quick enough, it can be the strongest handbrake. So um, that's why it's one of my favorite topics. And so where are we? Well, let, let, before we go into oil and gas, let's not skip over coal. 
Hmm. Uh, because coal is the most carbon intensive of all of the fossil fuels. And as we have discussed ad nauseum on this podcast, the time of coal is basically over because they're just no longer competitive against increasingly quickly dropping prices of renewables. And I recently saw a graph on on coal and it's really amazing, on new coal, it's really amazing how new coal has just dropped consistently. It doesn't mean that there's absolutely no new coal being built, but, uh, but it's just absolutely shrunk compared to where we were even just five or eight years ago. So, um, so you know, first, first coal, then oil and gas as the second most carbon intensive. And the transition of that sector is one that has really been in the news lately, um, in part because of what Tom has just told us about the unprecedented drop in oil prices that were produced by too much production artificially increased production because of the war, between the oil war. Um, And then that was met with an unprecedented drop in demand. Mm. So the dearth in demand with the excess production, that was like the mortal blow to the sector, to the point that, in fact, the storage capacity was already over allotted and because there was no capacity for storage anymore around the world, the prices went into negative. So basically they were paying people to haul the stuff away because they couldn't even store it. So that's just really quite um, an amazing situation. Now, obviously demand is going to begin to increase or has already begun to increase as companies are coming out of the lockdown. But it's not just the problem of oversupply and little demand. The fact is that that situation that was very circumstantial and a very short-lived situation just dovetailed in to a much longer experience that the oil and gas companies are facing. Let's and much of it has to do with climate change or with the increasing awareness of climate change. So let's just go through a couple of facts. The Task Force on Climate-Related Disclosures, um, which is basically evidencing and making very clear what the exposure to oil and gas or to coal is. The membership of that reporting system has increased 800% in the last two years, 800%. Capital markets are also now refusing. Their most private banks, or and certainly all public banks, are now completely refusing to finance any new coal, and um, and that is contracting the flow of capital to the sector and increasing the cost of capital. But there's those, the capital markets and the insurance companies, because they realize the risk, are closing their doors, in fact, not just to coal, but increasingly to oil and gas. Conversely, the finance world is opening its doors to renewable energy because it's less risky and because the cost is so much more predictable. It's so much less volatile. So an example there, of course, is the asset owner alliance with over $4 trillion that are committed to bringing their respective portfolio holdings to zero carbon by two, uh, 2050 at the very latest. Then you have corporate commitments that are on the rise, even during COVID. You have corporate commitments to decarbonize both their operations as well as their supply chains. So you have companies like Microsoft that has already taken on a zero net emission target for something as early as 2030 and Amazon for 2040 and a group of companies following Amazon and soon taking on a 2040 target as well. Then you have, on top of that, you have climate litigation. Just five or six years ago, you had one or two cases of uh, of climate litigation. Today, you have over 1,300 cases around the world, most of them in the United States. Not surprising. And then let's talk about social tolerance. 
honestly, the social tolerance of the entire fossil fuel industry has been completely eroded by the millions of young people that are marching in the streets or were marching and will soon march again. And of course, the social tolerance has further dropped because of the various studies that have recently come out that say that there is a direct relationship between air pollution, mostly caused by the burning of fossil fuels, and comprised human respiratory system, hence higher susceptibility to coronavirus. So all of this, right? I mean, it is the perfect storm. The fact is the oil and gas industry will recoup some demand. It probably won't go back to the levels of demand that we had before because transportation will be curtailed after COVID. So they will recover some price points. But when you take everything else together, then honestly, a very, very difficult position that they're in. I will now get off my soapbox. <laughs> Paul, climb climb on up, Paul. Uh, let me just add that thing to, uh, to the end. You're absolutely right, Christiana. I just want to say one thing about that task force on climate-related financial disclosure, a brilliant initiative from Mark Carney, who's been on the podcast. And we put that in our system. We have 8,000 companies reporting through that. And the point about business is... It's serious, right? It's full of professional people. They're very well organized. And the norms of modern business, okay, are towards low carbon. They are towards energy efficiency. Pretty much every serious, sensible business person on the world is driving in the one direction, which is pushing down demand. And that's why I I like to think uh, we're winning. All right. So we have two interviews today for you, which is um, more than we usually have, our normal total of one. So as a result of that, I think we should probably move to our conversation. First of all, we're going to bring you this discussion we had with Teresa Ribera, the Vice President of Spain and Minister for the Ecological Transition. Um, she, We have known her for many years and she's doing a remarkable job facilitating this amazing transition in Spain and will bring, I think, a perspective from a government around how they are trying to legislate in order to quickly move away from this dependence on a fossil fuel economy. So let's start with this and then we'll pick up the conversation after that. Let us start with what I would like to call the miracle in Spain. The miracle in Spain, which uh, which of course we know that Spain has had one of the uh, most... um, deepest penetrations of renewable energy in the world over the past few years to that. And that's very good news. To that, we contrast the bad news that Spain was one of the countries that was having a very, very difficult time with the management of the COVID-19 virus. So in the middle of both of those things, You have been preparing for quite a few years now, if I remember correctly, the public consultation for the climate change law. And now you have decided that you finished the public consultation and that it was the politically correct time to bring out the draft law that bans all new coal, oil, and gas projects with immediate effect and establishes the direction of the COVID-19 financial recovery effort in Spain. How did you even get to that decision? Yes, Mm. it's been many years in coming. Um, But as I say, you could have chosen to delay this for months until we weren't in the middle of the COVID crisis, but we are. And I would love to know what went through your mind to decide you personally and then convince the head of state and your cabinet members that this was the moment to do so? I think that uh, I'm on the optimistic side for uh, (laughs) this time being. (laughs) It's true that it's uh, difficult times, that's that's for sure. And it is true that um, we could have not ever thought of introducing, kicking off uh, this draft law in uh, such a strange and difficult uh, circumstances as uh, the ones we are going through. But at the same time, it is true that it is a very right moment 
to kick this off. Um, and I could say that it was easy for me and for the cabinet to go through this um, this uh, passing uh, the law because the prime minister was very convinced that uh, in such a big crisis, it was something due to the youth. Mm. We uh, were going through difficult moments. We had to get uh, um, difficult measures in terms of uh, the protection of the health uh, for any citizen, but also to cover all the uh, economic and social damage. And those um, going through these uh, circumstances uh, um, when trying to get their first job, when trying to have their first experience uh, after ending their studies or again getting through the the labor market were the ones that, that were suffering the most because um, stability was coming again to their lives. We have to remember that uh, 10 years ago, during the previous crisis, these uh, young people did also have these difficulties in front of them and had to face lower salaries, lower payments or more uh, um, invitations to get out of the country to get new jobs. So, Teresa, Teresa, sorry, did, is, is my memory correct that Spain actually, even before COVID-19, had already one of the highest unemployment rates in youth? Yes, it's true. We have a very high unemployment rate of uh, youth. And um, it's true that uh, this this figure did not uh, get as uh, better as we could have liked it uh, during the last years when the recovery was already going on. So, again, a second big uh, shock for uh, people, uh, very in particular for young people, uh, was uh, very difficult news for them. So the prime minister was convinced that uh, when trying to invest into the, uh, the economic recovery of the country and the social protection of um, our citizens, uh, youth had to be in the middle of the decision. And we had to think on what was the future we want to build for the country and not just on what type of reconstruction of what it already existed before the the crisis. Of mm -hmm. course, we need to pay attention to all the damage that uh, we have been suffering during these last two months and try to, to help and recover. But the recovery should be thinking into the future. Mm. Well, um, how refreshing. <laughs> how refreshing, <laughs> Teresa, because honestly, um, that is not exactly the reasoning and the logic and certainly not the conclusions that most political leaders are yeah. coming to yeah. uh, right now. Um, and now, of course, once you have done this, uh, the attention then turns over to the parliamentary process um, and would love to know your sense as to um, how that process might go. Um, how do, do you, since this is done for young people, do you basically have public opinion, at least among young people with you? Will that help you in the parliamentary process? How, how do you, how do you see the, um, the possibilities, the prospects for, um, I hope a quick approval, uh, of the law in parliament? I think there is a broad support on this idea. The green recovery, the energy transition, the digitalization of the economy, a system that it is much more efficient and based on circular economy, so using in a much more efficient manner the materials, um, is something that it is already in people's mind, including uh, corporates. Uh, add to that, uh, people have been suffering already the impact of climate change, so more droughts, uh, the risk of uh, getting arid uh, soil, so having difficulties both for tourism, for access to water, for agriculture, many things that people were already experiencing. And uh, this, um, this allows us to go a little bit uh, more optimistic when going to the parliament. I think that uh, almost all the political parties support the idea of using these references as levers for the uh, recovery. Of course, then we, when we get into the details, we may find uh, broader differences between the different groups. For instance, we've got uh, one political group that denies climate. 
That's something that uh, pitifully has become more and more frequent in some of our parliaments. But they do not um, deny the need to think and to rethink the energy system, which is curious. So something that it is interesting. And then we've got all the other parliamentary groups, greener or less green, that do understand that this is um, a kind of uh, refreshing, um, innovative approach to the economy, to the productive system, to the way we understand business and the way we understand how we can uh, relate to, to, other, uh, to other economies. And I think that uh, the society as such does support and does understand mm-hmm. that we need a framework in order to facilitate the transformation in, a, in an organized manner with something which is very important, um, the accent on social justice. Mm. This is not just because it is effective in economic terms. It's not just because it is business or it is not just because of environmental reasons, but also because of opportunities for people, particularly for the youth, but also paying attention to those that may fear the change because they find themselves being excluded unless there are some policies allowing them to, to find new opportunities. I mean, no, no worker uh, can be excluded because they work or he or she works in a sector that is declining. They mm. have a chance. They should have a chance to stay where they want to be, where they want to live and find other opportunities to, to make their living. So I think that paying attention to this type of investment also in the different country lands, in the different uh, counties is very important and uh, training and uh, uh, new skills and uh, new facilities in order to, to make uh, attractive uh, new investments in areas that have been uh, relying on coal or uh, or well high intensive uh, polluting uh, plants is um, is very important hmm. um vice president i have a question slightly different about that i mean you've 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 now taken this leadership position you've set spain on this direction recovering out of the coronavirus crisis you've engaged all these different stakeholders and developed buy-in for this view and and amazing that it's come so far and we all very much hope that it moves forward to to rapid adoption through the parliamentary process I'm also curious, I mean, I know you are a committed multilateralist. You've worked on the international stage for decades, the critical role you played before the Paris Agreement and so many other things. Um, What's your hope in terms of this leadership position you've demonstrated that it can provide an inspiration to others to take some bold steps at this moment? And also, um, you know, we are seeing to some degree a fraying of the multilateral uh, system at the moment um, with some concerning signs. What are your hopes for how we can come out of this and try and reinvigorate that process to the benefit of all of us for all these shared goals? And you can I- choose to answer that diplomatically or not so politically <laughs> correct. <laughs> I, I will. I will try to be correct. Yeah. <laughs> but but just to start with. Um, uh, something that uh, I think it is very worrying. I think that uh, we need to bear in mind that global problems only will find their way forward through cooperation. Right. So I think it is very important. We, we, we do not forget that the world is very, very, very small and we are very much interdependent and mm. we cannot hide from those problems. So, Pushing for multilateralism is absolutely key. And I think that it is very important in the case of climate that climate action goes beyond the diplomatic uh, channels. Mm -hmm. It has to happen in every single corporate, in the financial sector, in the society, among neighbors, everywhere. But at the same time, it is very important we identify which is the... uh, the driver, the common pathway, the reference that can play the role of uh, common metrics to understand where we are, how well we are performing, how we can uh, improve, and so on. So it is very dangerous to say, okay, this is not important right now, or it doesn't work, Mm. because I don't think we will have many other opportunities to make it work before we enter into really dangerous uh, new zones. So I think that we need to 
pay attention to care to 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 be um, quite 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 uh, attentive to what it needs to to be done and i guess that um, the uh, designated the presidency and the uh, ongoing presidency of uh, the cop uh, do still have a very important role to play even mm. if there is not a gathering this year because there are milestones that are already written in the Paris Agreement that have to happen this year, next year, and the, the year after next next one. And, and I think it is very important to push for this agenda hmm. happening, even through this uh, second virus we have discovered this these weeks, which is which are the video conference. I mean, all these electronics that um, get us connected uh, and avoid us uh, <laughs> or allow us not not to get planes, but but uh, get us trapped in front of a, um, a computer. For, for a long time. And I think that it is very important to share the information, to push for uh, sharing what, what we have been achieving, what is still not there, and so on. And, and it is not so easy to, to have everybody on board to identify which, is, which are the terms of reference in order to, to, to review our goals or where we are. So I think uh, it is uh, a bit frustrating, yes, and it is uh, dangerous and not to not to pay attention to to this to this aspect uh, even in the very positive and optimistic case which uh, I'm not sure it is the case yet that uh, climate action is everywhere. So climate action everywhere is fantastic, but at the same time we need to be sure that it really happens and it really uh, delivers. So we need this multilateral process ongoing. Hmm. Vice President, thank you so much. We so appreciate your time in the middle of a very busy day to talk to us. We so applaud and appreciate the leadership you've shown, mm. the way you've used your position now and also over many decades to advance this agenda. And in advance, thank you for everything you will continue to do. <laughs> <laughs> Not to put pressure on anyone. No there pressure. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Vice President. Yeah. Bye, bye. <laughs> bye. Thank you. Bye. bye. Thanks Great to you. Bye. So what a privilege to get to sit down with Vice President and Minister Teresa Ribeiro, who's been such a leader on these issues for such a long time and really is right now the person who is driving this agenda forward in such a remarkable way. Christiana, I know you've been friends with Teresa for years. What, what do you take out of that conversation of what's going on at this moment? Um, yeah, I, I'm just struck by the importance of leadership, honestly. Yeah. Uh, leadership makes such a difference and the absence of leadership also makes a big difference. But very specifically, I am, um, I'm struck in her conversation about three things that she talked about. One is, honestly, I was totally surprised that she began her conversation by saying we did it because of our youth. Yeah, that is the last thing that I expected her to say was the motivation of passing this law. And I think that is just so insightful, um, insightful from a political perspective, because immediately it gets you the support of youth, but also, you know, leadership, leadership. Yes, we have to be thinking about the future here. Um, so, so I was very impacted by that. I was also delighted uh, about her conversation about the morality of this, the just transition, the not, uh, you know, not stranding people when we are into this energy transition and her personal engagement, which she was very humble about, but she personally engaged with all of these unions, with all of these co-workers, with all of the um, um, leaders of the towns and villages where these people work and depend on their livelihoods for this. So, you know, really quite uh, quite an impressive uh, ground work that she did in order to be able to um, to get to this law. And, th and then finally, her continued commitment to multilateralism. I mean, thank heavens for those who uh, continue, despite what we see in the world, who continue to raise the flag of multilateralism, of collaboration and of cooperation um, as the avenues to go forward. Yeah. And then let me just pick up on, the, on your point about her personal commitment to going and talking to those people, for example, the unions and, and the coal industry. I mean, I've certainly always been very concerned about, uh, you know, business using its power to oppose government action. But the thing is, business can't really do that on its own. 
it needs to be able to use people. It needs to be able to use electorates. And, you know, uh, Donald Trump was actually very effective trying to kind of uh, be like the ally of, of the coal miners, you know, against the, 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 the you know, the, the, the liberal forces who, who, who you know, and, and, and frankly, he, you know, for whatever reason, he kind of won the election. So um, I, I, I think that, that it's one thing to say leadership, you're right, that's what it is, but it's a practical leadership that will get down in the weeds and make sure that you win the popular support for the green policies. Because I know that we all agree those policies make sense they are job creators but you've got to win that in the media yeah no i agree with that and i also think i mean you know i mean you said it already christiana but just her comment of why did you do this we have to do something for the youth we have massive youth unemployment we have to invest in that in a way you know the coronavirus the most vulnerable people are the elderly there's enormous amounts of debt being driven up and just the fact that she took those principles and then pivoted that into a political reason to do something for the youth it also reminded me of just how infrequently we see senior political leaders actually doing something for youth Right? It's actually quite uncommon yes. um, because, you know, voting yes. patterns are low, etc. How come that is so true, Tom? Because voting turnout amongst young people is not as high as in other groups. And so wow. that's what I think. And so therefore we see policy engineering focused on those groups that are reliably going to turn out and vote. And a huge amount gets reverse engineered from that. Hopefully what we're seeing in Spain is a strong sign. And actually youth around the world, I think, can feel proud and in Spain of the way they raise this issue and put it on the agenda in Spain. And I think actually we can see it happen in other parts of the world too. But what's interesting to me about this is that what we saw is that um, she has effectively introduced legislation that would end oil and gas exploration um, in Spain. Now, you know, Spain may not have the deepest reserves of oil and gas around the world, but it's still a very significant move that she would take that on. Now, hopefully that will pass through the parliament. We see every possibility that that will. But that, of course, will then lead us to another question, which is how are the private sector going to respond to this? I mean, we hear again and again Mm. from oil and gas companies, from super majors, that they just can't make this transition in the way that we think they will. So... Impossible? Can't be done? Is it unthinkable? Is it a dream? Is there an answer? Is there an answer? I've heard it's an attitude, actually, Paul. Is There's a rumour out there that it's an attitude, exactly. So some weeks ago, we were very privileged to sit down with Thomas Toon Anderson. Uh, he is the chair of, of, of Orsted, which is a Danish company which is largely engaged in wind energy. One of the most interesting things about Orsted is that They used to be called Dong Energy, which stood for Danish Oil and Natural Gas. And the reason that they are no longer called Dong Energy is because they don't have anything to do with oil and natural gas after a remarkable transition. So let's hear a section of this interview around how they made that transition and what that might mean for other companies. just start Thomas to you know just hear from you personally at what point and and why and what was it that you realized needed a total transformation of the business model and of everything name everything everything completely transformed I I think when you have an opportunity to talk about a unique story or a success story the word luck comes into it. Mm. Uh, And I think one of the fortunate things about our story is that we come from Denmark, where there has been a fairly large and early focus on sustainability or climate or whichever words you want to do. So uh, we had a legacy company, an oil and gas company, a utility company, uh, who had also, over the previous leadership, had been looking at some of the opportunities from renewable uh, industry and had actually started some of the world's first relatively small offshore wind farms. So we came with a legacy of at least thinking about these things. We then found us in a situation which, of course, is not lucky, but we had a difficult financial situation. Uh, so we had to take some quite dramatic decisions. And it, ha- it was about getting more capital into the company because it was potentially going bust. But it was very much about looking at where could we go in the future and how could we maybe see a unique platform for ourselves. And it is correct. The biggest part of our company was an oil and gas company, but also, of course, uh, coal-fired power plants, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we were in the dilemma that said that if we were successful 
from this bad position on all the businesses. In a way, we wouldn't have the money to be successful in any of them. <laughs> so we had two things. One of But them, why does that? Well, I'm not following that logic. Why is that? The logic is simply, for example, if you have a, have a successful oil company in itself, it requires more and more and more and more constant yes, exploration. Uh, and we could do that. But when we then looked to the opportunity in the renewable business, we, we could see that however much we invested in the oil and gas company, it would still, in relative terms, not have the same impact as if we could channel the money into what we believed in, which was a renewable industry. So what we saw at that time was some technologies that everyone said were too expensive. They worked, but they were far too expensive. And the general thought was that you couldn't bring the cost down. So this is very much a story about bringing the cost of electricity down, the cost out. Uh, but there was a belief that if we really turned our mind to it, looked at the supply chain, took a different approach to constructing offshore, i.e. you started doing more on the basis of what you would do in a traditional production company with lean projects and so on, where you really cut down on the supply chain to, the, to in a way, the bare minimum, if that's the right way of saying it, rather than trying to make unique projects every time, but you simply mm -hmm. did introduce more standardization and so on. So we were. And, the, and herein lies the core of the, of the success is we were able to bring the cost of electricity over a three, four year period down uh, to about 50 or even less than 50% of it was what it was when we had the first projects. And that cost came down because the technology improved, the renewable technology or, or the installation got better? How, why did that happen? All of above, but initially very much around standardized construction, hmm. um, And also looking at the opportunities and rather than taking the approach of 110% optimizing a theoretical yield or, or use of the seabed, we were more saying, but hang on, with a fast approach, you know, can be for half the price, and that's probably an exaggeration, but, but for a, a much reduced price, would we be able to install something that would give us 80, 90% mm -hmm. of the theoretical max, which anyway would mm -hmm. probably be the real max anyway. Mm -hmm. With a lower do, risk, probably. With a lower risk and bringing the cost uh, of electricity mm -hmm. down. So one was the supply chain. The other one was very much the fact that technology was kicking in. So the size of the offshore windmills grew very much so that so the yield from that became much better as well but it was all an issue of bringing the cost of electricity down constructing things in a more standardized ways get better windmills and so on and in doing so reaching and proving to the market this can be done mm -hmm. and i think th this is what is the more interesting thing here is that we have proven that there was a thought that the offshore market, people were saying, it will never happen, it's too expensive, it's too complicated. Now, fortunately, so much of the industry is running after this and we are now seeing it being rolled out at a big scale. And today we see the market today is bigger than we thought it was when we started five years ago. The competition is also more fierce than it was and what we thought it would be. But I think that's a much better place to be in. Yes. A bigger market, a bigger potential. Yeah, that's a nice problem and, to have. Yeah. And a more competition. Yeah. We are fortunate we sit with about 30% of the installed uh, offshore uh, global wind uh, 30%. Yeah. You know, what, one of the anxieties that is out there about climate change is time. How long is it going to take for us to transition, right? So how long did it take from being a fossil fuel company to a 100% renewable? How long? I could even tell it so it was even shorter. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but um, uh, you can say that uh, in 2014-15, uh, where we had proven and was beginning to get a pipeline of offshore wind, so we were beginning to believe more in what we originally believed in, yeah. but, but we had more kind of points of proof. Uh, we took the decision that we wanted to sell the oil company. Part. And, and you're selling more than half of the company to invest in the, in the smaller part of the company. So that, of course, is a, a risky thing. Definitely. Um, and um, uh, we did that when the oil market was particularly bad. Uh, so a lot of people would argue, but why are you selling it now? Because it's the worst possible time. But our 
vision was that if we didn't do that, we would never be able to move the mind mm-hmm. of people to what we to, really believe in. Mm-hmm. And really, the price of that, with the potential we saw on the other side, was fairly insignificant. So mm. a year's delay on the development of the renewable was worse, was much huge. more, yeah. both in financial terms, but also in, uh, in, in mindset, the mindset shift. terms and the mindset shift. Because to get, to get enthused about it, of course I'm proud of our story, but, but, but what I'm more enthused about is that we have proven it can be done. Yeah, mm. exactly. Because the next step is that we have to kind of have the same optimism because I know what the title of the program here is, mm-hmm. and we should also talk about some of the things that worry us. But right mm-hmm. now, I would like to take kind of the optimistic mm-hmm. view is that, that a lot of things can be done. Mm-hmm. But it does require some risky decisions. But it also requires that shareholders at large are willing to believe in a company's long-term value creation rather than just short-term profits. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting to think whether because that makes it an issue of leadership right if there are ways to transition these companies and of course it's complicated and of course it takes time and it takes planning and there are structural differences but that's an issue of leadership of the investors of the of the management team to actually take that step which is what yes. we're calling for and that's one of the things that is of course exciting here and, and when when you can see how much the investor community yeah. is now actually coming up and they have been talking about it for a few years and haven't really done it in the maritime industry, there's a project called the Poseidon Principle where banks and shipping lines and so on have come together where they kind of will theoretically only lend money if the shipping companies are describing how they are progressing down this uh, road and so on. Um, so, so there's a lot of initiatives and of course that would be a huge mm. uh, pressure. If the rating agencies like S&P and so on starts also having an, a, a, a sustainability measure in there so that you don't only measure on some financial robustness but also on what you do on sustainability and so on. Yeah. I use this as a moment of, of advertisement. Please um, do. <laughs> uh, was awarded or was uh, named uh, the world's most sustainable company. Wow. By most sustainable company across in the world, sectors. The world, yes. By who? Wow. By uh, corporate knights, which is one well, of the congratulations. which is one of the ones we really believe in. Yeah. You know, we, yeah. we yeah. really yeah. so so it, it it you know that shows that the journey is, is worthwhile, and mm-hmm. it's yeah. and there's actually people looking at it, and and if you start getting this into a a a quality way rather than just you know people popping up and making a seminar and appointing things, but where, where there's actually like in, in some of these here, a real structure for how you measure it and, and so mm. forth. And that kind of changes the dynamic. So totally. again, I think that's another thing which is positive. Yeah. And, and that point is particularly interesting. I mean, what we've heard from CEOs of oil and gas companies that we've spoken to privately who are, you know, and we are convinced very personally committed to our, to this, but what they say is if we announce that we're changing our strategy away from our core business of oil and gas and we're going to make a transition such as you made, all of the investors will immediately demand all of their money back and our company will immediately collapse. Is that a real argument? And what are the ways through if it is a real argument? There's two things here. One of them is that however optimistic I am about what we do with renewables, and I'm very optimistic mm. about which is our our core in our company is that we believe in a world that runs entirely on renewable energy. That's kind of our belief and that's what we are working towards. We will have a period of time when oil, to a lesser degree, but certainly gas, will be needed. Mm. We just need to make sure that that kind of interim period is as short as at all possible. Mm. So, of course, the world wouldn't be in a good place if all oil companies decided that they didn't want to produce any of their oil and gas. But it has to be so that whenever we have a choice, we accelerate or maximize the renewable transition and not keeping to some of the legacy fossil fuels. And then, of course, lies a dilemma for a number of the oil companies because they all the time have to find the balance between, yes, they might want to invest, but at the same time, if they suddenly have a choice yeah, it suddenly becomes quite tempting not to do the extra thing about right. renewable because they've already done something. Yeah. So we are in the situation where we don't have a choice. 
you know, if we want to grow, we just have to grow more renewable. We just need to do this faster. We need yeah. to do it better. We need to find other ways of doing it. You're not it. sitting between two chairs. And that goes back to the issue mm. of the importance of having clarity of purpose. Yeah. And we believe in a world that runs entirely on renewable energy. May I come to what worries me? Please. I think my concern is, as I've walked around here, uh, and, and, and also is that we have spent a few years on really explaining and making people realize how bad the situation is. And there's a real need to worry, and for not, if not in, have panic and, and, and so forth, because there's things that are really, really wrong. So we are beginning to get kind of attention and people are throwing themselves at it and so on. Great. So now I suddenly hear that people are saying, and, and there's actually solutions. And I'm just so afraid that if people start saying there's solutions, that people then lean back Mm. And, 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 and we lose the panic mm. that we should have. We should be in panic. We should be concerned. Yeah. And, and if we just let off the tiniest bit on that, then I don't think we will achieve right. it. But I think some of the things I've talked about and we have talked about here and uh, Ørsted as one of the stories, but there's many other stories, but Ørsted as one of the stories, uh, is an example that can show some of the pathway yeah. uh, to how we do it. So I think... So where I'm optimistic is I, I think it can be done, but if we lose our sense of urgency, yeah, then we won't. Then we yeah. won't. We were, I'm paraphrasing a comment from, from one of my colleagues, but uh, of course we are very proud of receiving the award as being the most sustainable company, but I would swap it if we had a sustainable world. Yes. Yes, uh, absolutely. So it is a journey that is both about our success, but it's also about a joint success. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and therein lies, I think, the prime driver in yeah, in, in, what, what, in what we yes, have achieved. Yes, we're totally with you on that one. Totally with you on that one. Thomas, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate uh, appreciate this. And uh, e even before knowing of the prize, uh, we would have congratulated you mm. anyway because you really stand out there as uh, such a role model. But now that you have the prize, even more congratulations. Thank you. And it's been an honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, so... How interesting to have the chance to sit down with somebody who's really done this, who's really transformed a company and taken it through that transformation that so much of the economy is going to have to go through. What did you guys leave that conversation with? I was really taken um, by his very clear argumentation that the reason why he wanted to bring the company through this transition is because he wanted to lower the cost of electricity. Yeah. That is, it's such an interesting argument because that's what they sell, right? And so lowering the cost of what you sell, obviously he's doing it because he's going for volume. He knows there's going to be more demand for renewables, but it's a little bit counterintuitive to take a huge leap to transform your industry if what you want is to lower the cost of what you're selling. Um, and then the other thing that was counterintuitive that I thought was fascinating is how he explained that they sold their oil and gas business at a point in which the oil and gas price was exceedingly low. Um, that's also counterintuitive to, to do that. And of course, that's where we are now. Mm. So, um, you know, ding dong, ding dong. Uh, this could <laughs> be a very interesting moment. And the third thing that I took up away from it is his insistence that what is really important here is value creation. Um, and that shareholders and customers, of course, have to uh, be able to appreciate long-term value creation over short-term profits. And the, you know, perfect evidence of that is if you look at share value of Orsted, um, it has uh, gone uh, through the roof since it became a renewable energy company. And if you compare share, um, share value of Orsted versus the 
still in the oil and gas uh, companies, those that are still in that sector, over the last two months, well, you know who has gone down incredibly and who has actually ticked up. Uh, and so it's very interesting because everything that we're reading is that renewable energy has actually been much more resilient to the crisis than um, the oil and gas companies. And it is true. If you just compare shareholder value of Orsted, let alone other renewables versus the um, majors in oil and gas. And uh, to his tremendous credit, whilst I agree with everything you've said, Christiana, he also has an incredibly calm voice. If I'm ever like crossing the Pacific Ocean or the Atlantic Ocean and something goes wrong with the aeroplane, I would love to hear him come over the Tanai and just say, we have clarity of purpose. We believe in a world that runs entirely on renewable energy. Hydrogen is also a storage medium like a battery. If rating agencies like Standard & Poor's have sustainability measures that starts shifting dramatically, we can have constructive panic. And I, I really appreciated that. I mean, in all seriousness, how cool to turn an oil and gas company into a renewables company. How cool to make loads of money for, for shareholders, to build a hugely successful business, to be ahead of the curve. He's like the Tesla of the energy that goes in Teslas, if that doesn't sound too strange. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. I would say, I mean, you know, you he was very humble about the fact that there are unique characteristics that have um, supported the transition from Dong, Danish oil and natural gas to Orsted, you know, including the historical nature of Danish interest in climate and sustainability, including the fact that their shareholders were particularly supportive of the transition. And that was an important part of their journey. But the fact that in the end, they rewarded that patience with an improved profitability and an improved commercial position really should be instructive to all of those investors that are so focused on short-term profits. Actually, if we want to preserve many of the great entities that have played such a pivotal role in human development in the form of the oil super majors, some people would argue they need to disappear off the face of the earth, but others would argue, and I would honestly put myself in that camp, that if we can help them transform in the way that Danish oil and natural gas has transformed into Orsted, and if the shareholders can understand that they can be as profitable and more resilient in the new world where they're investing in renewables, that is to all of our benefit. And actually, it's a relatively limited number of shareholders, and they need to understand that this transition is unfolding. They need to support those companies in making those changes because this is the moment to do it. Yeah, and, and I mean, that that's the, the frustrating piece for me about my soapbox, right? Because these companies have unparalleled engineering skills yep. and yep. Um, and they used to have unparalleled uh, depth of wallet that that's been uh, substantially reduced recently but they can be the engineers right they can position themselves to be the engineers of the energy of the future and that's the piece that I think and and furthermore they're all over they are omnipresent because we need energy everywhere. They are collectively in every single country. So how exciting to have a sector that has the skills, has the capital, has the presence in every country. It needs, however, the vision of leadership right. and the support from shareholders. And that's the only way those companies ultimately survive, right? Yep. And the, the, I just want to talk a little bit about the, the magical alchemy of wind energy, which they're ex experts in. I have outside of my window here in Brighton in the sea a 1.3 billion pound wind farm. It's quite hard to build something like that if you're a startup company. You need ships, you need drills, you need kit. You know, it's, it's, it's big stuff. But it's absolutely brilliant. And I heard about researchers who were actually uh, in Denmark asking about attitudes to wind energy. And Denmark's had a, a big tradition of producing its own electricity since about 1940 because they got their electricity cut off on the war and they started to put up electric wind generation. And uh, the researchers would say, does that windmill bother you? And people in Denmark would say, are you talking about our windmill? And I think that <laughs> we're on the edge of a, of a, no, seriously, but we're on the edge of a revolution where we suddenly realize how beautiful and wonderful it is to have these great machines producing our electricity for us that, 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 that we know is safe. And, and as you've always said, Christiana, the sun and the wind never send you a bill. And as you say, ownership and participation are the key in that. 
So this has been a different kind of episode of Outraged Optimism. We had two interviews for you to try and bring you this broad perspective on this transition and what's happening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Um, Next week is World Environment Day. We will bring you a very special conversation to mark this important moment in the midst of the pandemic that we're experiencing and how we're going to recover from this. We very much appreciate you coming with us on this journey, these amazing conversations with these brilliant individuals that we've had on this week. So thank you for joining us and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. So there you go. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell and executive produced by Marina Mancilla Herman. This podcast is made by a team, and that team is Sharon Johnson, Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Laura Richardson, Nigel Topping, and Michael Northrup. Special thank you this week to Anders Holst-Nymark and Annette Mullerup-Schmidt from Orsted for working with us to make our interview with Thomas Tune Anderson happen. And thank you to another team, Kati Arevalo-Martinez and Pilar Pelaz-Sanz for coordinating with us as well to make the interview with Vice President Rivera happen. And of course, a special thank you to our two guests, Teresa Rivera and Thomas Tune Anderson. Thank you. You can connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Global Optimism. And you can email us at podcast at globaloptimism.com. We read your feedback and we discuss it as a team. So make your voice heard, podcast at globaloptimism.com. So before I sign off, if you love podcasts like we do, Orsted has their own podcast miniseries on how to transform global energy systems to help solve the climate crisis. It's called Climate Action Now, an Orsted podcast on climate change and the solutions. It's available on Orsted's website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other places that you get your podcasts. So I put a link in the show notes. Check it out. Okay, next week, World Environment Day. We'll be here. Don't miss it. Hit subscribe. We'll talk to you then.